0: Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI's Executive Director. ABI podcasts are conversations with interesting figures in the insolvency world. You can see the full range of 40 past guests at abiworld.org. Listen from your computer or download your MP3 player and take the podcast to go. My guest today is Todd Zawicki. Welcome, Todd.
1: Good morning, Sam.
0: Professor Zawicki is a professor of law at George Mason University School of Law, and Senior Fellow of the James Buchanan Center Program on Politics, Philosophy, and Economics at George Mason University. He teaches in the area of bankruptcy, contracts, commercial law, business associations, law and economics, and public choice and the law. Professor Zwicky comes to us today from Nashville uh, because during this fall semester, he's a visiting professor of law at Vanderbilt University Law School. He's also taught at Georgetown Law Center, Boston College Law School, and the Mississippi College School of Law. Professor Zwicky clerked for Judge Jerry Smith of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He's worked as an associate at Alston & Bird, a prominent firm in Atlanta, Georgia, where he practiced bankruptcy and commercial law. He received his law degree from the University of Virginia, where he was executive editor of the Virginia Tax Review and was the John M. Olin Scholar in Law and Economics. He received a master's in economics from Clemson and an undergrad degree in high honors from Dartmouth College, where he was recently elected as an alumni trustee of the Dartmouth College Board of Trustees. Uh, From 2003 to 2004, Professor Zwicky served as director of the Office of Policy Planning at the Federal Trade Commission. He's also served as a member of the U.S. Department of Justice study group on identifying fraud, abuse, and errors in the United States bankruptcy system. He also serves as an advisory board member of the American Bankruptcy Institute Law Review. He's the author of more than 50 articles, in leading law reviews, and peer-reviewed economic journals. He's one of the top 50 most downloaded law authors at the SSRN site, both all time and during the past 12 months, which I'm told is not quite as many downloads as Brittany, Paris, or (laughs) Lindsay, but pretty good nonetheless. And finally, he's testified several times before Congress on issues of consumer bankruptcy law, consumer credit, and is a frequent commentator in the print and broadcast media. And finally, he's writing a book on consumer bankruptcy and consumer credit, which will be published next year by Yale University Press. So I recite Professor Zwicki's impressive uh, credentials uh, because he is perhaps uh, the most controversial name in bankruptcy scholarship today, at least among his colleagues uh, teaching in the field. And so first, Todd, I guess I want to ask you, uh, I've known you for a while, you seem like a reasonably nice fellow, what have you done to deserve this kind of attention and reaction from your colleagues?
1: Well, I think that there's, there's two things, which is one is uh, intellectual and one is sort of more political. I- intellectually, um, I think that what I've done is swum against the tide uh, that has really dominated bankruptcy thinking in law schools for the past several generations, really, uh, certainly since uh, the New Deal and perhaps before, which is that um, by and large, I have uh, um, Uh, uh, taken the position in my my scholarship that bankruptcy laws um, had become uh, out of balance uh, and tilted uh, too much in one direction um, and that that as an economic and legal matter, um, we should start to rethink what we're trying to accomplish with the bankruptcy laws and try to strike a different balance uh, perhaps in terms of making the uh, bankruptcy laws a bit uh, tighter with a bit more uh, accountability built in. Secondly, this is dovetailed with obviously the political uh, debates over the past few years in Congress where uh, the ideas that I have been uh, um, articulating um, have uh, obviously been related to the kinds of reforms that Congress has uh, uh, considered. And I think perhaps that second is the issue that's made me so controversial. I and mean, I don't think it's any secret that, by and large, American law schools are, uh, are really uh, much more liberal than the population at large. And I think if you look at um, the bankruptcy reform debates, for instance, uh, bankruptcy reform was enacted, was, was supported by 70 to 75 percent of Congress. Every Republican and virtually every centrist Democrat supported it. Um, And really only sort of the most liberal members of Congress opposed it. Um, Certainly people can have differences of uh, of opinion on the wisdom of the law, but as I look at it, the divisions were primarily ideological, primarily about people thinking about what was right or wrong for the bankruptcy system. And as I said, it's no secret that uh, the overwhelming number of law professors in America today are aligned With that 25 to 30 percent of uh, of Congress uh, is an ideological matter rather than the 70 or 75 percent that I think was the uh, motivating force behind the law.
0: So bankruptcy policy has now become like a lot of other issues uh, that we face here in Washington. Uh,
1: As it turns out, I think this had a lot of uh, a lot of that air to it. Uh, um, Historically, the motivating force. For bankruptcy law in America was, I think, ideological, which was that America was it, it, historically has always been a very debtor-friendly place. Obviously, it's a place where people have come from other countries, escaping debts, looking for a fresh start, that sort of thing. Um, we went through a great social experiment in the middle part of the uh, part of the century, whether it was with respect to bankruptcy or with respect to welfare policy um, and those sorts of things, where we expanded. Our, uh, um, our social welfare programs, and we can one can see bankruptcy as an extension of that. What we saw over the past 10 or 20 years, uh, uh, especially since the uh, Republican takeover of Congress in the 1990s, was a move towards balancing those traditional uh, norms with uh, um, a, a more sense of personal responsibility, for want of a better phrase. And so, I think that in many ways, the what's Bankruptcy reform was the same sort of impetus that spawned things like uh, welfare, comprehensive welfare reform policy in the 1990s and that sort of thing, a, a sense of trying to strike a different balance between personal responsibility on one hand and uh, social welfare policies on the other.
0: You've uh, already alluded to uh, being identified as um, uh, one of the leading or, or prominent uh, proponents of the 2005 Uh, bankruptcy law, and uh, you have been a fairly outspoken defender of it still uh, recently uh, at a congressional hearing. I want to ask about a couple of the features um, of the law, particularly in the consumer area, that are really at the heart of of the policy reform. One of those uh, key features, of course, is the means test. Um, Now, so far, uh, it has captured very few debtors. Uh, Statistically, it could be as as little as around 1% um, of those uh, who have filed for relief under Chapter 7 under the new abuse standard. So given that number, what would you say to the law's many critics, particularly of this provision, that it's evidence that the law's aim... um, Focusing on uh, needs-based bankruptcy was was way off. That there really are very few abusers of the bankruptcy system, and the means test is a matter of uh, costly bureaucratic overkill.
1: Good question. I think that that everything I'm going to say today, and sort of the general conversations about these questions, are um, uh, couched in the sense that everything we know about. BAPSIPA right now is, is very tentative. We're just starting to get some uh, some feedback about what's working, what's not working, what could be improved, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and so what we're going on is based on what we know today. What we do know, the most striking aspect of BAPSIPA obviously has been the dramatic drop in bankruptcy filings uh, overall. A, a second striking aspect is that based on what we know so far, um, the percentage of filings that are Chapter 13 filings have actually increased from what we've been able to tell. So we've seen a large drop in filings generally, but a larger drop in Chapter 7s than Chapter 13s. So what does that that give us uh, in order to think about means testing? Well, there's three different things going on with means testing. Number one is, um, as you noted, here is that a relatively small number of people are actually being challenged as uh, uh, abusive filers who've tried to file Chapter 7 and moved to Chapter 13. Secondly, um, though, um, the rise in Chapter 13 filings as a percentage, um, we, we don't know what's going on right now, but it, but it could be that at least uh, some of those people are people who are just simply filing in Chapter 13. That the, uh, that the law is clear enough that people who may have filed under Chapter 7 now are simply filing under Chapter 13 and entering into a, uh, a Chapter 13 plan. That's something we don't know yet for, for sure, but that would be one explanation for why Chapter 13s have risen as a percentage, especially when you think about the offsetting factors like the anti-cramdown provisions which would have expected Chapter 13 filing to fall. The third tranche of people may be those people who would have filed in the past but simply choose not to file now. People who may have been in the, uh, who could repay 60 or 70 or 80 or 100 percent of their unsecured debt who in the past may have filed under uh, uh, Chapter 7 uh, but now because they know they would be uh, likely to have to file in Chapter 13 may simply come up with a different, uh, different scenario. So we don't know for sure at this point uh, how many people fall in each of those three categories um, but certainly, there must be uh, some people who are simply choosing not to file now who would have filed in the past. In that sense, means testing has served its, uh, its purpose if it causes people to uh, simply go somewhere else and enter into a repayment plan or come up with some alternative to bankruptcy.
0: Is any of this surprising I mean, to you as, as, uh, as someone who certainly advocated for means testing?
1: Um, I... I, would, I confess that uh, um, I, I am surprised at how dramatic the drop in filings has been. Um, we're still trying to figure out why that is. I had expected filings to drop. Um, I did not expect filings to be about half of their old state uh, two years after the, uh, the law went into effect, especially when you take into account the economic disruptions that have come since then uh, um, in terms of rising interest rates in terms of new federal uh, reserve regulations which raise the mandatory minimum payments on credit cards. But a lot of things that you would have thought in a typical cycle would have driven up bankruptcy rates, but so far haven't. So, so far we don't really know why this drop in filings has uh, occurred, but to the best of our ability it appears that it's because the law has actually been working and done what uh, what uh, those of us who supported it hoped it would do.
2: We pause this week's podcast to bring you bankruptcy in the news. As Congress returns after Labor Day from its August recess, one of the first topics it will address is the current crisis in the subprime mortgage lending market. The House Financial Services Committee has scheduled a hearing on September 5th entitled Recent Events in the Credit and Mortgage Markets and Possible Implications for U.S. Consumers in the Global Economy. The committee will hear from witnesses from the Department of Treasury and the Federal Reserve. The second panel will consist of witnesses from the mortgage banking industry and other market participants. More than 16 lenders have filed for bankruptcy, according to Bloomberg News, and two Bear Stearns hedge funds filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy after suffering insurmountable losses on subprime investments. The global effects have been evident as banks around the world scramble to find remedies in response to the tightening credit market caused by the U.S. subprime market downturn. While is taking a closer look at the causes of the subprime downturn, Congress could also contemplate changing the bankruptcy laws so courts can restructure home loans as they do other personal loans like credit card debt. About 1.7 million households will lose their homes to foreclosure this year and next, nearly double the number of the previous two years. Senator Richard Durbin plans to propose amendments to the Bankruptcy Code in a bill called the Helping Families Avoid Foreclosure Act that would, among other things, permit writing down loans and stretching out payment terms. If you would like to find out more about the history of the subprime mortgage lending crisis, and perspectives of leading experts on the current situation, be sure to read the cover story of the September 2007 ABI Journal, titled The Subprime Meltdown, Not Again. This has been John Hartgen of the ABI. Thank you for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Let's
0: move on to another uh Controversial uh, aspect of the consumer portion of the law, a, an element that uh, comes up right at the outset, if not before uh, literally the outset of the case, and that's the mandatory pre bankruptcy credit counseling requirement. Um, studies by the General Accountability Office and National Consumer Law Center and others strongly suggest there's relatively little benefit from this additional step in the process because most debtors are simply too far gone to have any meaningful alternative to bankruptcy by the time they get to the counseling step. The GAO report, um, in fact, quoted, the value of the counseling requirement is not clear. The counseling was intended to help consumers make informed choices about bankruptcy, yet anecdotal evidence suggests that by the time most clients receive the counseling, Their financial conditions are dire, leaving them with no viable alternative to bankruptcy. As a result, the requirement may often serve more as an administrative obstacle than as a timely presentation of meaningful options. Um, Some, less charitable, would call it kind of an empty gesture. So how can we justify the current counseling mandate?
1: This has been... uh, um... Uh, A a very interesting uh, area to watch. Uh, My recollection was that during the legislative debates, this got very little uh, attention. That it was one of these things where, by and large, um, uh, supporters of the law and even consumer advocates tended to uh, um, generally support this, was my my recollection, which is even consumer advocates thought, well, more education and counseling, that sort of thing, is better than less. I think that uh, since the law has been uh, uh, been in, in effect, This is an area that continues to require important scrutiny uh, to see whether or not it's working or not. And the the fundamental question is whether, as you suggested, is is a cost-benefit analysis, which is, does the cost of this uh, justify the benefits? And there's two questions with respect to the benefits, which is, number one, the percentage of people actually redirected into the debt management plan seems to be relatively small, as you said, maybe 2%, 3 4% of, uh, of filers. On the other hand, um, the, United, the Executive Office of the United States Trustees uh, um, uh, findings, they indicate that over 10% of those who actually go to uh, um, the consumer credit counseling and get a certificate issued, over 10% of them never end up filing bankruptcy. We don't really know what happens to those people, whether or not they go and end up paying their bills or they disappear or whatever. But um, if it's 10 plus percent rather than 2 or 3 percent that where people actually find some alternative to bankruptcy, then it's not as clear that the, uh, that the provision is not worth the, the cost. The second thing I think is uh, um, that uh, um, we, we do need to do con- constant and ongoing scrutiny to figure out whether or not we can make this work better, to make it cheaper to tailor it better to people's particular circumstances um, and, and that sort of thing. Because certainly there are people who are in bankruptcy for reasons completely unrelated to uh, uh, financial mismanagement and the kind of debt counseling they might need is uh, completely, or whether they need it all, would be completely different from what, what others might need. So I think that this is an area where we're going to continue watching it um, and perhaps revisit the issue.
0: Well, the new, uh, the new Congress, uh, under new management, if you will, the 10th Congress, is looking at a lot of issues. Um, not so much uh, it appears changing the 2005 law as much as focusing on uh, lender practices uh, within the consumer credit industry, whether they be uh, marketing practices, uh, interest rates charged, fees charged, disclosures uh, and related uh, practices um, that would uh, provide some uh, relief to financially strapped uh, individuals and households. Um, and so the, uh, the hearings have been uh, very much focused on oversight of, of the industry. They're trying to convince the industry to perform their own practices or persuade the Uh, regulatory community, the bank regulators and the like, um, to make those changes uh, by regulation, recognizing that it's very hard to uh, enact a change, um, not only to the bankruptcy law, but also to substantive bankruptcy law. Of the uh, provisions that uh, you're aware of or the the, uh, uh, possibilities for changes in these areas of lending practices are... Are are there some of these that um, you think warrant a change in policy, uh, either by self-regulation or by regulatory action?
1: I think that what Congress is doing is certainly uh, uh, worthwhile, especially when you look at uh, what's been going on in the subprime market uh, uh, for sure. So I think that uh, um, they're looking at it, uh, the Federal Reserve is looking at it, um, and I think that's, uh, that's all healthy. What we know is that regulation of consumer lending is an uh, area that is very, very difficult and just fraught uh, with unintended consequences. So let's just take one example that's uh, come up, which is possibilities of regulating, say, these uh, um, behavior-based or penalty fees on consumers, such as over-limit fees, late fees, that sort of thing. Um, the only uh, economics uh, paper that's been done on this, a paper by Massoud and some co-authors, finds that in fact um, these late fees, behavior-based fees, are a substitute for interest rates. So that if Congress wants to say cap uh, fees that are put on, uh, on uh, late fees, the likely effect will be that the rest of us will pay higher interest rates. They also find that these fees are in fact Risk base, and basically what they are is they're based on consumers' actual behavior rather than just a, a prediction of how consumers is going to behave, which is what a uh, what an interest rate is. Uh, it's just, that's just a guess of how somebody's going to going to behave. So, so as soon as we start looking at these questions, we start getting into these trade-offs about uh, um, cross-subsidization among different borrowers. Um, and regulating some prices of a contract where lenders can then adjust other prices of a contract. Subprime lending is obviously fraught with the same sorts of trade-offs. We now have the highest home ownership rates in American history. In large part, that is because of the expansion of the subprime market. So if we crack down on the subprime market, one, we are going to obviously um, protect some people, but we're also going to interfere with some people who have been able to get houses and get a hold of, you know, one of the greatest wealth generating assets in uh, in, in America. So uh, um, so anything Congress does here I think is, is worthwhile looking at. Certainly the Federal Trade Commission and others should be rooting out fraud uh, um, and attacking fraud wherever it, it exists. I think Congress could think about uh, improving disclo- disclosure regulations along the lines of uh, a recent FTC study by Jim Lacko and Jan Papalardo where they show that disclosures can be made better and thereby make the market work better. Um, and, but I think right now, with, uh, Congress should move very carefully and make sure that they don't uh, uh, act in a manner such that the unintended consequences swamp uh, the good that they do.
0: Another uh, focus of uh, oversight hearings uh, this uh, this year has been on what uh, some folks um, believe strongly to be uh, among the root causes, if you will, of uh, consumer uh, financial problems and ultimately bankruptcies. And that's uh, the, the shortcomings of the American healthcare care system. health care costs, the uh, inadequacy in ac- in of uh, insurance coverage uh, and the like uh, for families, even, even those who uh, have jobs and have even employer-based health care. I take it you have a slightly different <laughs> view of of healthcare as a root cause of consumer bankruptcy.
1: Yes, I think that the uh, that the, uh, the the recent um, commentary on this I think is is largely unsupported by the uh, by the data. Um, what seems to be the case is uh, certainly uh, uh, healthcare problems um, and health expenses are a factor in some number of bankruptcies. That can happen in two ways, both because somebody ends up with a large portion, a large amount of of medical debt that they can't pay, uh, or because people have health problems, which uh, generate all kinds of other problems, such as missed work um, and that sort of thing. The best evidence accumulated over many, many years was, uh, um, at least at the old uh, higher bankruptcy filing rates, maybe... 10% or less of uh, filers were those who had crippling medical debts, and maybe 10% or less were those who had uh, um, um, severe health problems that caused them to miss work and that sort of thing. A recent study suggests uh, or argues that that number may be as high as 50%. That study is not really a very credible finding. Uh, For instance, it classifies anybody as a uh, uh, health-created bankruptcy anybody who uh, accumulates more than $1,000 in unpaid medical bills over a two-year period. But to give uh, give you a sense, at the year that was done, 2001, the average out-of-pocket per capita health expense uh, uh, for Americans that year was $683. So over two years, you're basically talking about people exceeding that $1,000 cap. What we know is that a relatively small number of people, maybe 5 to 10% of people, have very, very large medical debts, a lot of people who are in bankruptcy have some medical debt, but most of it is uh, um, uh, a thousand, uh, around $1,000, uh, not, not likely enough to be the cause of somebody's bankruptcy.
0: You recently um, wrote an op-ed
1: in the uh,
0: Wall Street Journal uh, where you argued that although secured debt obligations for things like homes and cars have gone up, as have health care costs, Uh, Would you acknowledge there, that those increases were really dwarfed by the rise in taxes on the middle class. This is sort of an alternative theory for why uh, families uh, in the middle are facing uh, financial stress. Can you share a little bit of the thinking there?
1: Certainly. What this uh, responds to is a a body of literature that argues that uh, um, uh, what's called the two-income trap, uh, which is that the entry of a second worker into the uh, workforce over the past generation, usually the wife uh, is a full-time worker, has not actually improved the financial condition of uh, of Americans. Um, It's just uh, uh, generated a whole new slew of expenses that go along with that. Now, there's a lot of very dubious uh, um, theoretical underpinnings to uh, to that argument. But what I basically uh, have argued is that if you take that argument as given, the theory behind it, Um, And you look at actually where the uh, pinch has come to American households, it is clear that it has come because of uh, the growth has been in terms of taxes rather than these other expenses. So, for instance, over the generation, the addition of the second worker plus other income growth has increased household income by 75%. That number exceeds the percentage increase in the mortgage or or, or adding a second car or health insurance, all of which, uh, uh, health costs, all of which grew less than 75%. By contrast, taxes during that period grew about 140%, about 140% such that uh, the growth in taxes exceeded the growth in all of those other three uh, uh, categories in, 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 uh, in total dollars. This is for two reasons. One is because the second worker gets taxed. Um, at the marginal rate that picks off where the first worker uh, uh, went to work. So it basically often gets taxed at the, in the higher tax brackets. And second, there's been a rise in state and local tax burdens, uh, in particular things like uh, property taxes, uh, which have risen along with, the, uh, um, along with the appreciation in house values. So if we want to talk about relieving the stress on the American middle class, it seems clear that the stress is coming from an increase uh, in uh, tax obligations May, most of which are just taken right off the top uh, in terms of withholding and that sort of thing. Um, and while these other things we should obviously be concerned about the cost of, uh, of housing and uh, uh, healthcare and that sort of thing, let's not lose the big picture. Let's uh, let's go for the low-hanging fruit. It seems like if this is going to be what our actual concern is.
0: Well, we'll see if there's any uh, prospect for any further tax
1: reform. Right. Years. But tax cuts, that may be the one thing I'll say today where people might actually agree with me.
0: Huh? There, there is a little bit of evidence of
1: that. <laughs>
0: Not much. Don't get too excited. Let me, let me ask you one last question, and that is I alluded at the outset uh, to your book on consumer bankruptcy and consumer credit uh, coming out next year. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book.
1: Certainly. Thanks. So, um, Basically, as as I said at the outset, uh, um, what I've uh, urged over the past few years is a a completely different way of thinking about consumer bankruptcy, and in particular, the rise in consumer bankruptcies uh, through the 1980s and 1990s. Um, And basically, my argument is that if you look at the underlying data, there is no good evidence that the uh, uh, rapid rise in bankruptcy filings during that period can be explained by the traditional factors that we understand uh, uh, as leading to rising bankruptcies, such as unemployment, divorce, over indebtedness, uh, um, and that sort of thing. So for instance, if you look at what the Federal Reserve calls the debt service burden, which is the percentage of uh, household income dedicated to paying debt each month, um, it's basically been constant since 1980. Why? Number one, because interest rates have been low during a lot of that period. Uh, But two, what we've seen is a dramatic substitution of new forms of credit for old forms. So the growth in credit card debt, for instance, has been primarily just an offset of a decline in other types of debt. So it used to be that you would, if you bought a refrigerator, you'd open up an installment plan and repay it $50 a month. Nowadays, you would just put it on your your credit card. So what I argue in the book is that the rise in bankruptcy filings has been not a result of more people having to file bankruptcy, but more people choosing to file bankruptcy as a result of things like changes in social norms, the incentives created by the code, changes in uh, the types of credit that, uh, that, that people use. Um, and I also argue that that is consistent both with the, the logic that underpinned the 2005 bankruptcy reform legislation and is also consistent with what we've seen at least in the two years since then, uh, which has been this dramatic drop in, in filings. So uh, um, so that's the basic overview of, of the book, which will be coming out next year, I hope.
0: Great. Well, we look forward to the book and the ongoing debate. It's uh, certainly uh, controversial. It makes people uh, rethink all their uh, traditional assumptions on, uh, on debt and credit in America, which is uh, probably a good thing. It's certainly an interesting thing for us. Scott, I want to thank you for joining us on ABI Podcast, and good luck at Vanderbilt as well.
1: Well, thank you, Sam, and uh, congratulations on ABI's continued success. You're always the first place I go to to uh, get uh, any new news on bankruptcy. So thanks for your service.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks also to our audience for listening. Uh, until next time, this is Sam Giordano saying good day from ABI.